ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, one of your hosts, Government Relations Director at EAA. Across from me... I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Manager, and we're here recording um, a special guest who's about to go and speak in our museum tonight. Uh, John Van Atten is here with us. Uh, John, thank you for making the flight over and being here with us in person. You're welcome. I uh, certainly enjoyed the invitation. Well, this is this is a high honor for us, and for those who are listening, uh, you're about to hear why. We're going to get into to a little bit of John's history, and, and of course, one specific rescue mission that you were part of that I think is a a, a pretty big page in a history uh, here. Um, but let's start out a little bit. It's one of our favorite questions to ask everybody because I think everybody has a a, a different answer. Uh, what first got you excited about flying? What first made you want to do that? Well, I have a photograph that was taken probably in the 50s, uh, where I was sitting on the back of a J3 Cub, but just in front of the rudder. Uh, and I think my mother or father took the picture. I grew up on a cattle ranch, and this airplane had landed in the field to uh, attend a sale that we'd had that day. And from that point on, I was kind of built model airplanes in the basement, you know, filled the house with fumes from the paint. That sort of thing. Oh, that that sounds really familiar. <laughs> I used to get uh, yelled at a good bit for that. So, <laughs> uh, still do. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the uh, well. So, how did you start flying? What was the sort of your pathway into to actual? Well, I was my father's an engineer, and I was set up. I was set. My mind was set to be an aeronautical engineer at Purdue, and I had all my books and everything courses all set to go. And um, I was at a party one night with uh, Fred Hovde, who was the president of Purdue at that time. And um, he told me they, they just started a brand new four-year program in the aviation school and um, to teach people to be commercial pilots. And I thought, you know, it'd be a lot more fun to fly than it would be to draw pictures of those things. So I in, switched over and, and joined that class and, and uh, I got my private pilot's license through Purdue uh, in the, you know, 1965 and, uh, and progressed all the way up through all the airplanes that they had. Well, and that included some heavy iron, right? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, we, we had the, the Pipers, the little Cherokee 140s and 180s, and uh, they even had an arrow there that were your com- complex airplane. I got all my licenses, my mold engine, and instructor and CFI and all that. And then my junior year, we went into the heavy airplanes. Purdue had its own airline. Um, it was called Purdue Airlines. And it was, uh, their license was a supplemental air carrier license, which allowed them to do anything. They wanted cargo, passengers, national, international, SCED, non-SCED. They, I mean, it could do anything. And um, it, it, they had this little airline set up. Uh, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Gibson was the guy at the, at the university that actually set it up. But um, I started flying the DC-3, was the first airplane, and uh, that was a handful. Uh, anybody that's flown a DC-3 can tell you that it's it, it's not simple, because and, and you have to be strong. Because to get your license in the airplane, you have to fly it single engine around the traffic pattern. There's no hydraulics except for the gear and the brakes. And uh, so you're pushing against, you know, I forget the horsepower rating, eight, eight 900 horse on those things. And uh, so you got a rudder pedal you're pushing against, you know, full power on one and the other one is shut down. And it took me, I mean, I'm, I was in good shape in college and... It, I had to lock both knees and push as hard as I could on that one rudder pedal just to keep it going straight. So, it, it you know, hydraulics makes a big difference. So I flew that airplane, and then I got into the DC-6. So I flew the DC-6. Uh, there was a company called MPATI, which was Mid- Midwest Airborne Television. And it was a DC-6 modified with an antenna that looked like a 
like a telephone pole. It was all the way down the belly, and in flight, it would go straight down, and the airplane was full of of uh, big tape, the, the old tape players. And they would videotape these professors at Purdue, and then they'd, they'd take the airplane up over Kentucky and, and fly in orbit down there and put the antenna down and transmit this. So all the high schools, you know, from Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, every, all that area could pick it up. And um, it was interesting because you had to fly the airplane at Mito maximum except takeoff power all the time that that antenna was down. So we had a lot of uh, engine uh, situations. Um, so I flew the DC-6. And um, and then the DC-9 came right at my senior year, the DC-9. They bought two brand-new Dash 30 DC-9s. And, um, and then this black airplane came on the ramp, this black DC-9 with a white bunny on the tail. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our next airplane. And Playboy brought that airplane to Purdue because they didn't have any place to maintain it and crew it and, and and all that. So Purdue made a deal with them and we got another DC-9. Um, probably one of the best jobs in the world as a senior pilot flying that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> that, that had to be a pretty wild, that's a, and that's a beautiful airplane. I've seen pictures of that. Oh yeah. That airplane's yeah. all gloss black with the Playboy bunny on the tail. That's a wild paint job. Yeah. Reminds me of like the Vandy schemes the Navy uh, Navy did. So Yeah, it was highly modified. And uh, the black paint looked cool, but when you flew it down to the islands or into Florida or some place like that, it got so hot because of the color that even with the APU running and the you know, the full air conditioning system on, it couldn't keep it cool. Wow. Yeah. It was you really had to run one of the engines to get it to cool down. Man, all the, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, Riddle and UND and uh, maybe even Purdue students listening right now saying, how did I miss out on all of that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm still flying a Seminole. I said, <laughs> I, got, I got 1,500 hours to go. <laughs> so after this sort of process, how did you decide to go into the military? Well, there was a thing going on then that was called the draft. Oh. And, um, you know, if... If you were a, a student at that time um, and in good health and, you know, the the, the the Army was after me big time. I They had already ordered me to go to physicals. So I had to go to physical down in Indianapolis and a couple of my pilot friends did as well. So they were just waiting, you know, for us to graduate and they would, you know, they would draft us immediately. And uh, John Thatcher and I, he was close friend of mine. He and I, as soon as we got our paperwork that said we'd graduated, we never, neither one of us ever went to graduation ceremony. As soon as we got our papers from Purdue saying, you know, you've graduated, we put those in our pocket and, and got in his old Ford and drove to Texas and signed into uh, the Air Force in San Antonio and then went right into officer training school in San Antonio. So that's how I got into it. Wow. So what was your training uh, progression like? What type of aircraft? Well, I started off with, um, uh, the, after officer training school, uh, I went to Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. And the first airplane you fly, they call it the T-41, but it's actually just a slightly modified, like 180, 182 rather. And um, we fly that for probably... 10 hours, maybe a little more. Uh, and it, the whole thing is to weed out the people who uh, obviously will not be able to uh, pick up the program because uh, learning to fly an airplane in the Air Force is a intense. The program is intense and it's fast-paced. Uh, you know, in six months, you can go from a guy on the street that can't ride a bicycle very well to being all by yourself in a supersonic airplane. So um, it, it's, it's intense training. And so right away they weed out 10% of the class. 
and then we go to the T-37, and that was the first jet that I had flown that was aerobatic. And, uh, and that's where I really learned how to do, you know, loops and, you know, split S's and, you know, it had the nastiest spin characteristics. Um, you take it up and, and, and enter a spin just like a regular, you do a regular airplane, stall it, kick the rudder, hold it back, and it starts going. Well, you let go of everything and it just keeps going. And you take, your, take the stick and move it forward and it goes faster. And it, it will spin so fast that you can see the fuel spray out the vents on the wingtips. It, it just it goes that fast. And so to get out of it, you pull the stick all the way back and catch something on the horizon go by and count two rotations and then kick full opposite rudder to stop the rotation. And as soon as the rotation stops, you go full forward again with the stick and and put the rudders in neutral, and the airplane normally comes out. If it doesn't, it'll pop upside down and start rotating, you know, up in an inverted spin. It, it's just nasty flight con, you know, flight characteristics in the spin envelope. Other than that, it was great. It, it turned jet fuel into noise really well. <laughs> um, that's called they call it the tweet. Yeah, I've heard it called the dog whistle and all uh, kinds of stuff. <laughs> super noisy and very inefficient because it was not pressurized. And you couldn't fly it over, you know, 20s, 20,000s. And uh, um, so the fuel consumption was real high. So, you know, we never took it cross country more than one state away. Uh, and then the next airplane was a T-38, which was the Ferrari of the world. I loved that airplane. It is still my favorite airplane. All the ones I've flown, that's still my favorite. I mean, wow. F-16, all of them. I still like the T-38 the best. Wow. And uh, it, it was just an awesome airplane. Wow. It, it, you couldn't make it spin, and it was just faster than hell. Um, we would do a – we kept everything kind of slow around, uh, around Vance because we didn't want to create sonic booms, and we didn't want to do a lot of stuff like that. Um, and it, the airplane to fly it was just, it was very sensitive, um, and in uh, formation flying, it was a dream. Uh, you could pull right up tight to the other guy, and uh, uh, I could still remember one day I went out to, we were out in Oklahoma, west, the west Oklahoma area, and uh, we were doing close trail. And, you know, that's one airplane and the other one underneath him, and up and as close as you can get. And, and your rudder, if you're the low guy, your rudder is shaking from the exhaust of the airplane in front of you. And you're just feet away from them and doing aerobatics in that position. Wow. And it was to watch the world go around like that, it was just spectacular. But uh, the 38 is, is one of my favorites. We. We took off from uh, Vance on our long cross country to go to Homestead in Florida, Miami area. And uh, I looked at the weather and I told my instructor, I had an instructor pilot in the back, and uh, we were flying with another, uh, Bill Henderson was gonna be uh, a student, was gonna be solo in, in uh, another airplane with us. So we took off and headed down, but I looked at the weather before and I asked my IP, I said, I don't, I don't like the looks of this. There was a, the standard big thunderstorm line on the northern part of uh, Florida, southern part of Georgia. And uh, he said, oh, don't worry. We'll just go over the top of it. And I said, that, you know, okay. So we, we're at 41. We <clears throat> flight planted at 41,000 and 0.9 Mach. That, that's how the airplane cruises. And... Um, so we're up there buzzing along, and sure enough, here comes this this line of weather. And I thought, there's no way we're going to get over the top of this at 41. So I, I asked my IP, I said, what are we going to do? We can't get over the top of this. He said, ask for higher. I said, okay. So we get 45. They give us 45. Still not going to get over it. So I called for 50. I said, okay. They gave us 50. So we got up to 50. So we're at 50,000, and uh, we're just skimming through the cirrus at the top and my wingman comes in and moves in 
tight so he doesn't lose us in the in the clouds, and in the process moves the throttles, and it and when you move the throttles in an airplane like a T thirty eight at fifty thousand feet, the flames are so small in those engines that any adjustment you can lose that engine. And he did. He lost one of his engines, and he just disappeared right down into the middle of the worst part of that thunderstorm line. <laughs> and you can't even start a restart till you're down to 20, I remember, like 22,000. And uh, so, I mean, and I asked my back, my uh, instructor, I said, I'm going to go down with him, make sure he's okay. He said, no, let him go. <laughs> he said, he can land at Tyndall. We don't need to go down there. I said, okay. So we flew on to... You know, flew on to a homestead, and and he hooked up with approach control, and we never only got one radio, so we we didn't really follow him down. But and uh, but just as we were getting out of that area, they said that he was you know on the ground, so we knew he he was okay. So we went down to homestead, and on the way back we stopped and uh, looked at the airplane, and it was a mess. It had, flown, it had hail damage, like somebody taking a ball peen hammer on the leading edge and just beat it big time. And the leading the, all around the intake, I'm sure the engines were toast. Wow. So, but he made it, which was a good thing. <laughs> I wonder if they ever flew the airplane again. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. So we've... We've had a couple of folks come on the um, uh, come on the show. We've had a couple of spooky uh, veterans, you know, folks who flew the the, the C forty seven in Vietnam, having gone through basically the same program that you did, which I always found kind of funny, you know, going from the T thirty eight to a to a C forty seven. Right. Uh, you kind of went the other way, and you you already had some pretty extensive experience. Um, what what was that like? Kind of going back to back to essentially primary flight training after having um, having the career that you already had at that point. Well, most of the flying that I'd done at, at Purdue was heavy stuff. Matter of fact, I had 1,200 hours when I graduated, and uh, uh, all of it was, well, most of it was heavy stuff, but I was too young to get an ATP. Um, so I, you know, just went into the service. But it, it, uh, the Air Force was a training process, and, you know, no place at Purdue did I learn aerobatics or formation flight or any of that stuff. So it was a, it was still a, a strenuous past, path to uh, to get to the wings. Uh, we had I think sixty some graduate in our class, and I was third in the class. And then I, and then after I graduated from pilot training, my next assignment was um, gunnery school in at uh, Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico. We flying T T thirty threes. Which was definitely going back. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, no nose wheel steering, and it was just crazy. But uh, it, it was a gunnery school where we used 50 caliber machine guns that were in the nose, and we dropped bombs and shot rockets at the range. And uh, I did that for three months and uh, came out top gun on that, which was really kind of cool. And, and then my next my next class was um, OV-10 school. Had to teach me how to fly one of those, so I got up to uh, Hurlburt, uh, which is a auxiliary base, auxiliary field number nine from Eglin. And I went down there for three months, and, and that airplane, I loved the way it flew. It was just super noisy and, and uh, was hard on your ears. But uh, I liked the way it flew, and... Uh, we did basically the same thing there. We did uh, some formation flying, and then we did, you know, it had four machine guns. So we did the, the gunnery range uh, almost every day. And then we went out and did other, you know, things and approaches and everything. Um, did that for three months, and you know, I was lucky enough to be top gun in that school as well. So um, I came out of there and went through survival schools, which were— no airplanes involved in those. Went to Global Survival in Spokane, Washington. I went to uh, Water Survival in Florida, and I went Jungle Survival in the Philippines, and then to uh, Vietnam, where it was Cameron Bay is where we landed. I spent a couple of days there, and they told me my uh, PCS or 
permanent next assignment was in Thailand. So I went to Thailand to the NKP, Nakamphanam, Royal Thai Air Base, and uh, that's where the OB-10s were. A bunch of them were stationed. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what, what was the main role of the OV-10 in Vietnam? It was a forward air control airplane. It's, uh, that mission was primarily reconnaissance. Uh, we'd go out and look for trucks and tanks and things like that on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, we used it for close air support. Uh, if a couple of, you know, army, whatever, gets get in a fight with the bad guys, uh, we'd go in and, and uh, help them. We were limited in the fact that we only had four machine guns and they were only 30 calibers. Uh, but the rockets were, you know, but we, we ne- almost never carried um, high explosives or flechettes. We, we, we did it sometimes, but most, 90% of the time we carried 14 rockets and they were white phosphorus smoke rockets. And our whole mission was normally find a target and find a fighter with bombs and show him the target and then let him go for it. That was for about the first half of my tour. And then the second half, when we got a laser uh, designator on the airplane, then we could do our handle smart bombs. And remember, this is 1971. We're we're dealing with uh, 2,000-pound laser-guided bombs that we could guide eight miles away. So it, 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 the technology that the military has is pretty impressive sometimes. Wow, that's, imp- that's incredible. And just backing up just a little bit further, uh, for mm-hmm. those who aren't familiar, can you describe the OV-10 um, for our listeners? The OV-10 is a relatively small airplane. It's a high wing. Uh, it, it carries, uh, uh, as I said, normally 14 rockets and 2,000 rounds of ammunition. It's got two seats, one behind the other. Uh, the engines are uh, Garrett, uh, TPE 331s, as I recall. And uh, that engine and that airplane were built together. That, that is the very first airplane that engine was ever put on. And later it was on Aero Commanders and, you know, MU-2s and all that stuff. But right in the beginning, the very first airplane was the OV-10. And uh, we had... When you sit in the OV-10 in the ejection seat, there is a plexiglass from your thighs all the way around to your other thigh. I mean, it, you are in, literally in a glass bubble. So the visibility sometimes is too good. <laughs> <laughs> I can only and, imagine. And, and sitting in a, you know, in a Nomex flight suit uh, in a 100-degree day in the sun in Southeast Asia in the arming area waiting for the guys to pull the pins out of the guns and all that. You sit there, the sweat just, ah, it was horrible. <laughs> and no air conditioner. Oh. At all. That's brutal. <laughs> Nothing. No heat, no air conditioning. Just cooking under the greenhouse. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it was hot. Oh, we carried, uh, we, we got these little uh, flasks that look like, uh, you know, guys put booze in it, but We'd put water in it. The plastic, they're plastic flasks, and we'd put water in it, put it in the freezer, and then just before we left our our BOQ, we put it in our flight suits in the pockets. So by the time you you get in in the air, uh, it's all liquid because wow. it's so hot. But uh, it was cool. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, you're talking about the hot over there, or, or Huey. Uh, if anybody has been out to the museum, we have beer cans sticking out of the rocket tubes. And we did that because we we have photos of the crew and they had these beer cans sticking out of the rocket tubes. And we asked them, we said, hey, what was the deal with that? In my head, I was trying to rationalize it as, oh, they were probably trying to keep debris out of there or whatever. And they said, no, on the way home, we'd put our beer in there and it would cool off. And then when we landed, we'd have cool beer at least. Uh, you know, so any way to cool off our beer in Vietnam. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, Generally, at this point, I think I would ask somebody, you know, is there a is there a flight or a mission that stands out the most for you? Um, but I think that's probably going to be uh, the re- one of the reasons you're here to talk tonight. Uh, maybe maybe not. Um, I flew probably 15 SAR missions, and it was one of the top ones that that I remember. 
But I think the wild and craziest one was my roommate when he was shot down. The rescue, rescue of, of uh, Nail 31, Dale Bre- Dave Breskman. Um, he and I were, were th- this was the very first time we'd ever seen this. We always flew by ourselves. Uh, and, and the mission came down as two airplanes. So Dave and I decided that's, that's cool, you know, we'll get some formation flight in. We haven't flown formation since school. So we took off and everything was great. We both had laser birds because we were, they were sending laser guided bombs from the aircraft carrier uh, to this target that was called the catcher's mitt. And it was called the catcher's mitt just because of the shape of the river. And uh, we both took off and the lasers were so strong that they told us never shoot them in friendly territory unless you're above 4,000 feet. So we get up to 4,000 feet, then we we unstow the lasers and turn them on and make sure they work. Mine wouldn't work. I couldn't get it to fire. So I said, Dave, I said, you go on and you know get to the target. I said, the bombs are on the way. So I'm gonna go down and get another airplane. So I you know, chopped the power and went down as quick as I could. Uh, my backseater and I got out, jumped in another airplane, fired it up, took off. And by the time we got, soon as I started to unstow the pod, I could hear that David had been shot down. So we head for the area and he's on the ground and his backseater's on the ground. And I, I talked to him uh, and I said, you know, how you doing, Dave? And he said, well, I, I think I, I, I may have broken my ankle, you know, when I fell from the tree, but he said, other than that, doing okay. And, uh, his back seater, I talked to him, and, and he was maybe a quarter mile away. And I talked to him, and he seemed to be fine. So the bombs started coming. And so, you know, I've got two survivors on the ground, and what am I going to do with 2,000-pound bombs? So the only thing I could think of was there was a whole road network around there. And I thought, well, if I can just, you know, crater, and, and, and a 2,000-pound bomb will make a huge swimming pool. Uh, instantly when it hits the ground. And so my idea was to cut the roads with those bombs so they couldn't drive any trucks in and, you know, with a bunch of people and go after, look for Dave. So uh, I did that. And then I, I look at my fuel, I'm getting a little low. And, and so the next on-scene commander comes and he was flying an A1E Sky Raider. It was the commander's favorite airplane. It was beautiful. It's an H model, so he had that little bubble for a top, and uh, that's all he had for a canopy. And uh, so he and I are flying. Of course, he gets there and says, "Well, where is he?" Well, you look down, and there's a little river and a jungle, you know. So you can't put a smoke rocket down because everybody in the world will will know where he is then. So you've got to talk the other guy into it. From you know, well, you see that brown tree on the little curve of the you know that sort of thing, and 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 that's what I was doing. But what I was what I the way I did it, I got on his wing, and I got real close to him, so I could look right through his canopy, to what he was seeing, and so I was talking to him about you know the road and this bomb crater and this and that and where Dave was in relation to that, and at, while we were going through this conversation. He gets hit with a 37 millimeter right in the engine. And it just goes boom. And there's this big white cloud comes off the engine. And then it starts spewing white smoke. And he starts panicking because we're low. We're like 2,000, 2,500 feet. And, uh, you know, he's, he's panicked. And, uh, and the oil from the engine has come over the canopy. So he's completely blind, and all his instruments are gone now. He can't. There's no attitude indicator, no anything. And he says, "I'm getting out. I'm I'm getting out." And I talked him into not doing that. I said, "Look, I, I'm right here. I'm going to tell you. Turn right. I'll get you out of here." So he listened to me. He didn't jump out. He listened, and I I vectored him out till I got him about half a mile to a mile away from the area. Got him out in the middle of a rice paddy so the bad guys couldn't get him easily. And then I said, okay, punch out. And then he, he bails out. And the airplane was in flight about four seconds before it 
I mean, he was because he was going down all the time. And uh, and I had another because I've got five radios in that airplane. I'm talking to everybody, and uh, I got a hold of Air America, and a helicopter from uh, Air America came and and picked him up. He wasn't on the ground more than two minutes. Just picked him up, was gone. So and then I was out of gas. I mean, out out of gas, and uh, uh, I didn't think I was going to make it back to the airport. But I, you know, the, the airplane they had to pull me off the runway because as soon as I landed, both engines quit. Gee, whoa! So. They had to pull me off the runway, but um, we got him. I got a DFC for that mission. Holy cow! So wow, well earned. Thank you. Wow. How did uh, how did the other OV10 uh, crew come out? The Dave, you mean, in his backseater? Yes, sir. Um, they got Dave out the next morning. They brought Spectre in that night, and Spectre is the C130 gunship. And they brought him in that night, and Dave said they were shooting all night long. Wow. And he said stuff was blowing up and all around. And he said 8 o'clock in the morning, helicopter shows up, puts a penetrator down, pulls Dave up. And just as I was leaving, after the A-1 goes down, I wanted to make one more check-in with Dave. So I, I called him and I said, Dave, how you doing? You know, you got enough batteries, you got enough water, you know. You know. He said, yeah, I'm doing okay. I got you know, I got this many batteries and this much water. And he said, I got an AK-47. I said, Dave, where the hell did you get that? He said, from the Gomer that I just shot. I said, oh, oh my God. Gosh. Wow. He's the only guy that I worked to rescue for who shot his way out with his thirty-eight caliber pistol and made it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, the the hair on the back of my neck is stood up. So, <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Uh, so, I, I I think we have to obviously ask you about the other. Uh, I know you flew several search uh, and rescue missions, but um, there was one that's uh, a pretty historic. It's well known uh, called Bat Two One. Can you tell us a little bit about the Bat Two One mission? Sure. Um, the whole Bat Twenty One mission took eleven days. And uh, it started off with Gene uh, Hamilton uh, getting shot down. He was a member of a crew of an EB-66, which is electronic warfare uh, airplane. He was at 30,000 feet, and it's an unarmed airplane. Um, it, it's up there to fool around with the SAMs to try to mess up the SAM missiles. Um, and he was the only survivor. The airplane was hit by two SAMs. And um, one of the forward air controllers from uh, the East Coast, from uh, Da Nang, um, saw him in his parachute as he was coming down. But the weather was lousy, and, um, you know, his actual location, they couldn't, they couldn't really determine. Um, and then the next day, the, the SAR started, they, um, they sent people... Uh, they, they sent some army, uh, a Huey and a Cobra, a team, across the river to go after him. And uh, they, they shot one, the Huey down and uh, killed all the people on that except one, the door gunner, uh, who ended up as a POW. And then the, uh, the Cobra was shot up really badly and made it back across the river and then out to the ocean, to the beach, and they picked him up with an H-53 helicopter. Um, and it was just, you know, they sent an on-scene commander from Da Nang, and they shot them down in an OB-10. Uh, and and uh, they were on the ground for, they tracked them for 11 days, and then they lost contact with them, and they were, neither one were ever heard from again. Uh, and then... Uh, Bill Henderson took off from NKP, my base, and uh, in an OV-10. He was shot down um, as the on-scene commander, and um, he and his backseater, Mark Clark. Um, and uh, Henderson was captured almost as soon as he landed, and uh, his backseater found a place to hide and, uh, you know, waited, waited for the duration. Um, and then I was 
pretty much next to go. So I went as the on-scene commander, and Bill Barron was my backseater. Uh, we took off, and I had a little tape recorder that I carried with me. And I had, I just, this was the very first mission I was going to try it. Uh, I had the electronics guy wire it into the whole audio system of the airplane. So when anybody transmitted and I received that transmission, it would start the tape recorder automatically, and then it would record it, then it would shut it off and wait. Well, I, I plugged that in to try it. So I've got the tape of uh, the first part of that mission um, till the batteries ran, till the tape ran out. But anyway, um, so I get there. It's about a 40-minute flight, and in the process, uh, there's another on-scene commander who's an A1E. Uh, he and his two wingmen were in the process of uh, trying to get Gene out, and and they, they've been flying around and you know doing what they do and. Um, they evidently thought it was safe enough to bring in the helicopter. So they were ushering in this H-53 helicopter um, to, to pick up Bat-21. And um, just as the helicopter crossed the Quaviet River, the Camelo River, depends on which map, map you look at, it's got different names, the uh, Camelo River, as um, soon as they crossed that, you know, the world opened up. And... And they got all kinds of, and you can hear it on the tape. Um, you, they were taking all kinds of anti-aircraft fire, and you can hear, and and this is my opinion, what happened, that the pilot of the airplane got hit either someplace serious because he pushed the mic button and just held it down, and you could, you know, you could hear all kinds of racket and, you know, and, and then nothing. So, uh, and he was blocking the transmission of other people. But as soon as the, as soon as the helicopter hit the ground, then that stopped and we could once again talk. So, um, you know, it was, uh, they lost everybody on that airplane. Uh, and, and then Sandy one leaves with his guys and I'm the next on scene commander. And it's like, great, you know, what a mess. So Gene Hamilton is about ready to throw in the towel. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's a 52-year-old lieutenant colonel. And so he's, he's about had it. And, and there's been, at this time, there's been 15 people that have lost their lives so far to try to get him out. And uh, so we had a little discussion um, on the radio. It was all G-rated. But I talked to him about his surrendering and back and forth. And then and then he told me, he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to work. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get out of here. So I couldn't get any more helicopters in there because it's do the same thing that happened just then. So I took my rockets and, and, and started looking around him for targets. And I could see this smoke coming, looked like smoke, but I got my field glasses out. It was dust and it was five Russian tanks that were coming down a road that was just northeast of where he was. And so I zipped over there, and I, they were T-54s. And um, so the first thing I did was call the Navy, and they sent me four uh, A-4s with 500-pounders and, and rockets off the carrier. And uh, I put a smoke at the first tank and a smoke at the back tank. I mean, these fighters are at 30,000 feet, so they can't see anything. And so, but they could see that smoke. And so they came down and saw the tanks and I turned them loose and they, they killed every one of them. So they, they had a nice day at least. Uh, and they went back to the carrier pretty happy. And then I was out of gas, so I had to go to Da Nang and uh, refuel. And it got to the point where, um, you know, and, and I'll talk about this tonight, that we had to move him and we couldn't move him because he there were 30,000 North Vietnamese regulars within range of him. I mean, they just moved. Because he, he parachuted into the middle of their offensive, right? Yeah, I don't know if, um, I don't know the timing. I don't know if they were there first or he was there first. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's called the April Offensive or the Easter Offensive, Easter Offensive. And um, 
I don't know if they were there first or or he was, but uh, I think the the rules for the bad guys were don't shoot at anything until it crosses the river. And as soon as it crosses the river, everybody shoots. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it, it looked like it was playing out. And uh, so we went in there. Uh, the A1s previously had gone in there and, and dropped um, what we call CBU, which is cluster bomb units, or in other words, like small hand grenades all around Gene. You know, not completely around him, just in certain areas to keep the bad guys away from him. And um, now that was an issue because we wanted to move Gene to the river so we could get a couple of seals to pick him up. And, um, you know, we were in a quandary to figure out how to do that because uh, the bad guys were on, on the radios so tightly that if you said, well, I'm, gonna, I'm flying right now over the catcher's mitt, you could see him start shooting over the catcher's mitt, even though there's no airplane there. I mean, that's how tight they were on the radios. It was just crazy. And so we knew that if we said, oh, Gene, head for the river, you know, that would be it. So we went back and talked to some of his people in his squadron and discovered that Gene was a, um, a good golfer, loved to play golf, and he had a photographic memory. And the r- real reason that, that uh, this, this whole SAR was going was because of his knowledge. Uh, he was an expert in searching in, in surface-to-air missiles, uh, both ours and the Russians. So there, there's no way. When, when we left, I to go back a little bit. When we wef- left for the mission, uh, we were briefing uh, before that we took off and the Twix came down from Intel and it said, you know, here's his location, here's all the information about him, but uh, use, all, use all available assets to get him out. He must not fall into enemy hands. And I looked at my backseater and I said, does that say what it does to you? It says to me, we either get him or we take him out. You know, and he said, yeah, that's it. So that was our mission, either you know, rescue him or kill him. That that was you know that was the game, and uh, so as uh, as time went on, uh, we we figured out the golf courses that, that we thought he played because of where he'd lived. So the next day, I talked to him. I, I called him and I said, uh, I said, Gene, we want you to play the sixth hole at Phoenix International, and call me when you're on the green. And I could just see him go. <laughs> what the hell has this guy been drinking? You know, but, you know, and after a couple minutes, he, he called back and he said, okay. And then about 45 minutes later, he called me and said, I'm on the green. And we worked him that way. You know, first of all, we went west, north, east, and then south down around the, you know, the little mines and um, got him to the river. And then, you know, two days later, uh, Tommy Norris and Nguyen Van Ket picked him up. Wow. So, That's incredible. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> it's wild and crazy. And uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, wow. And, and, and yeah, as you said, I, I mean, it it's a uh, it's a testament to our commitment to, to leave nobody behind, but also, you know, just the, the fact that the consequence of, of, uh, of, of the intelligence that, that he had, um, yeah. was, uh, was, was very, uh, uh, impactful. So, um, so obviously that, you know, the, uh, that was probably, you know, that one and the, and the, uh, the other search and rescue missions that you flew probably were some of the more intense highlights of your career. But um, wh- what did you go on to uh, after, uh, after flying OV-10s? Uh, after OV-10s, uh, I came back and um, my assignment was to go to, um, as a T-37 flight instructor. And, but at this time, everybody was coming to the States, you know, so I went to my base and I said, in Alabama, and I said, uh, got my base, the base commander, and I said, here I am, you know, it's my next assignment. He said, he said, I got more 
flight instructor's coming out my ears. He said, Where you, where's your home? I said, Indiana. He said, go home. He said, I'll call you in a couple of weeks and tell you how you're, you know. He said, you can't do anything here until you go to IPIT, Instrument Pilot Instructor School. And he said, there's a six-month waiting list for that class. So that's, he sent me home. And so I went back there and, you know, I was playing golf and having a good time. And I went to a party one night and I met a, a army general who was retired and uh, he and I talked for a while, and uh, he said, well, what are you doing now? And I said, well, just waiting for this class. He said, he said the Air National Guard down in Terre Haute, you know, they, they, they're looking for pilots. And he said, they really need somebody that knows how to drop a bomb. He said, they, are, they class all the National Guard units by their gunnery scores. And he said, they're almost last in the nation. And I said, well, I, it'd be a lot more fun flying a fighter than it would be to you know, teach somebody and still I could get a job, you know, make some money at the same time. So I went to Terre Haute and they hired me immediately and I was into the guard in seven days uh, out of the regulars and uh, spent eight years flying fighters for them. And the last thing, I flew the uh, F-100 uh, and then I flew the F-4 uh, for a week with the Navy off the carrier Constellation during the war, that was kind of fun. And uh, and then uh, came back and flew with the guard in the last airplane that I flew was the F-16. So it was fun. What what an amazing career. I know. <laughs> DC-3s to Vipers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's quite the quite the career there. It sounds like a book. So. <laughs> and and you, you met Colonel Hamilton much later, right? I did. Um, it was 15 years after. I can I got pictures of them here, but um, I, 15 years after the rescue, uh, and I was I don't remember exactly what I was doing at the time, but the Air Force said, you know, we, if you'd like to come to Nellis, we're going to have a kind of a symposium on this rescue, and anybody that was involved in it, we're going to try to get them. So. Um, I went down there, and Tommy Norris was not there, uh, but Nguyen Van Kett was there, along with uh, Daryl Whitcomb, who wrote the book, who wrote the book about the rescue. He was not—he was a nail, and he was a—he was in the area, but not during that time. He was like a year later. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I went down to uh, fighter pilot Mecca, better known as as Las Vegas, and uh, we had a symposium, and I talked a little bit, but I, I met Gene, and, and I'd never met him in person. I walked up on stage, and I stuck out my hand, and I said, Gene, I, I'm John Van Etten, and he looked me right in the eye and said, no, you're Nail 32. I'd recognize that voice anywhere. <laughs> wow. wow. Just blew me away. Wow. The uh, so you know I have to ask I I think we always ask people if they've had a you know a production made about uh, something they were involved with. What did you think of the movie Bat Two One that they uh, they made? Well, it was interesting. Uh, I saw it a couple times and I, it was too much Hollywood for me. Um, and then uh, Rose Holman, who's an engineering school in Indiana, that's a really really good school. They asked me to come and and show the movie in their auditorium and then stop it whenever I wanted and talk about what's right and what's wrong. And so I did that and that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, but there's a lot of Hollywood in there, um, especially during the rescue. I think they ran out of money or something right at the end, you know. <laughs> so, well, he's in the river now. We got to get him out. We don't have any money. It's send a speedboat and get him. <laughs> and that's literally what happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and actually in real life, uh, it was uh, that was a you could write a book just on that. Um, Nguyen Van Kett and Tommy Norris, uh, uh, they stole a sampan at night and paddled up the river, up the Camelo River, um, thirty thousand North feet all around, and uh, they went all the way up to the bridge where they thought he was and couldn't find him. 
and then came all the way. But they had to get back because Tommy Norris is blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and he just didn't fit in, you know, <laughs> even though they had the dress and the hat and all that. So they didn't want the sun to come up. And so uh, next night, they did the same thing. They went up again, and um, and they found him. And he was pretty much delirious and everything else. And they put him in the bottom of the uh, of the canoe and or the sampan, and uh, and brought him back. And on the way back, uh, Nguyen Van Ket said, "I could, uh, I saw this patrol, North Vietnamese patrol, right on the side of the river." And he said, "That river's not that wide." And so we're pretty much in the middle of the river, and they started yelling at us to stop. And uh, and he said, we just ignored them and just paddled real slow. And he said, my back was just burning because I knew they were just going to, you know, open up on me. But he said they never did. So. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for making the trip over. You brought your lovely bride with you who's <laughs> going to join us tonight. Um, just can't thank you all enough for for, for being here uh, for our speaker series. For those who are unfamiliar with that, uh, usually it's the third Thursday of every month. We have someone come and talk about their experience in aviation, put on a program here. Uh, so we encourage you to come out and join the museum. We will record it uh, so that if you are listening from somewhere abroad, you can uh, – uh, not only enjoy this podcast, but at a later date, you'll be able to watch uh, the presentation as well. Um, but, uh, Tom, do you have anything else to close us out here? No, no. Uh, just uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Um, thank you for everything you've done for the service and for this country. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's been an honor uh, talking to you for the last hour. Thank you very much. Well, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to you. Keep coming out and supporting the, not only the speaker series but the green dot our podcast you're enjoying here uh we really enjoy the uh, the comments and feedback you leave us uh, if there's anything bad we just send that to tom so uh uh he's our he's our complaint department but uh, all joking aside those comments uh and the support are really what helps make us uh, able to continue to do this so so thank you for uh, for that and we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot mm-hmm.